Please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Please stand as we read God's scripture today. Mark 5, 21 through 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came up from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went into where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God. May God have blessing upon it. Have a seat. When I was a kid, the absolute worst board game, we were talking about board games up here, the absolute worst board game that our family ever chose to play was Monopoly. Monopoly is the family killer Monopoly is the relationship killer. If you have somebody in your life that you wish to no longer be on speaking terms with, play Monopoly with them. Because here's what happens. You start playing Monopoly. First of all, that game takes like two and a half weeks to get through a full game. But there comes to a point where one person is obviously going to win. They have the best properties. They have all the hotels. And everybody else is obviously going to lose. But it doesn't happen instantly. Instead, it's like you're slowly strangling all the people who are going to lose. And so they're just sitting there turn after turn in desperation 
trying to stay alive for one more turn. They're mortgaging properties. They're making desperate deals. They're doing anything they can just to stay in the game. But they're going to lose, and they know it. So sooner or later, they just flip the board over, and they stalk out of the room, and they say, I'm never speaking to you ever again. And you say, nice game, Mom. I'll talk to you next week. Of course, that's just a game. And when it comes to real life, sometimes it can be worse. Sometimes real life has hopeless causes. Is there, is there a hopeless cause that you feel like is going on in your life right now? I think there might be. Real life has hopeless causes and situations just all over the place. And we can get stuck in those, not just for the length of a monopoly game. We can get stuck in those hopeless causes for months and even years. Where we're, we're feeling like there's just nothing that can be done. There's nobody who can come into our situation and help us. Maybe you're in one of those today. After all, a lot of us are Bills fans. We know a lot about hopeless causes, right? Pause for laughter. Why did I write pause for laughter in there? But seriously, maybe you feel like your hopeless situation is you can't find love in your life. Maybe you're jobless. Maybe you're drowning in debt. Maybe you have a chronic condition or you're, you care for somebody who's going through something right now that's just so hard and you can't help them. Maybe right now you're uncertain about future choices or you're deep in depression. Or maybe you have the hooks of sin deep inside of you and you feel like they can never come out. Or maybe your hopeless situation is that you've messed up so badly that you think there's just no recovery from it. There's no forgiveness. Good news for you is that this book right here is full of hopeless causes. We see hopeless causes all over the place in the Bible. Men and women feel like their situation couldn't get worse, and there's no way it's going to get better. But instead of writing them off time and again in the Bible, we see how God comes in to hopeless situations, and he brings hope, he brings salvation, and he brings victory. In fact, in this chapter in Mark we've been going through, has been called the chapter of hopeless causes. Because we got not one, not two, but three absolutely hopeless causes that Jesus encounters. Last time I was up here, we looked at our first one. We looked at the man who is possessed not by one demon, but by a legion of them. He was a hopeless cause, written off by that community, and Jesus came into that. And today, we're going to look at the second and the third. Now, nearly every parent has this horrible moment where they have to rush and bring their kid to the emergency room. It's just the worst. One day, uh, I had Benji when he was a little kid. He was crawling around on the floor, and he got a hair. He got one of Joy's hairs wrapped around his toe. We didn't find out about it until it was too late. They called it a hair tourniquet. Have you ever heard this term? I never did before that day. We get so tight in there that we can't actually cut it off. It was going to chop his toe off. It was so tight. And we rushed him to the children's hospital, and they had to get in there with the tiniest scissors and the tiniest tweezers and this giant thing to get it off of him. I just remember when we rushed him in, just praying to God, going, I hate this feeling, God. I think every parent's been there, where you rush your kid to the emergency room. It's almost like you're pleading with the doctors, doctors, do anything. Make my child better. This is the most precious person in the world to me. Be with them right now. I think that's why we can identify here with Jairus. 
He's a man of some standing in that community. When Jesus goes back to Capernaum, remember most of his initial ministry has been taking place in this town. And Jairus is the administrator, the ruler there at the synagogue. He's a man who schedules all of the speakers. He's a man who has this power and this wealth. People look up to him in this community. Probably Jesus, he was the one who invited Jesus to go preach at that synagogue, especially the, the day that he cast out that demon. But when Jesus gets back, instead of strutting up to Jesus, Jairus rushes over and throws himself at Jesus' feet. Why? Because he is pleading for the life of his girl. He's pleading for his daughter. His only daughter, Luke tells us. And he cares for her. In, the, in fact, in the Bible right here in Mark, it doesn't just say that she's sick. It doesn't just say that this little girl's terminal. The language here is that she is literally breathing her last breaths in this world. She's gasping for air. And this man is beside himself. He has no, no other recourse. And then he sees Jesus coming out of that boat. And he gasps and he, he shrieks and he runs over and throws himself down and says, Jesus, come to her. Come to my little girl. If you could just put your hand on her. I've seen you heal all these other people. Just put your hand on her. Heal her. Please. Jairus has no pride at this point. There may be a lot of friction and tension that we've seen between Jesus and the elders and the teachers and the Pharisees. But Jairus doesn't care. He knows that they can't help his little girl, but he knows Jesus can. He has faith in this man. And he prays to Jesus. This prayer right here, it's a passionate prayer. It's an honest prayer. It's a prayer of a humble man who doesn't care about his pride. He cares about the one he loves. And he knows that Jesus can heal her. Not only does Jesus hear this prayer, but what I love is that he responds immediately. He doesn't like let Jairus dangle here. He doesn't go, oh, now you're back, Jairus after not defending me last week when everybody was attacking me. Jesus doesn't hold grudges. That's not how Jesus is. Instead, the great physician sees somebody who is in need, somebody who cares for somebody who's in suffering, and he goes immediately. He says, immediately. He says, Jairus, let's go. Let's go take care of this. Sometimes we wonder if Jesus hears our hopeless cause. We wonder when we pray, if we're just praying to the void, if God's asleep that day, if God hears us and goes, mm, all right, pray another ten times, I may get around to it. But that's not how, John, that, how God works. First John tells us that this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask for anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. The Bible tells us it promises that he hears us. Jairus here wasn't telling Jesus what to do. I think if Jairus came up and said, Jesus, right now you go to my house and you heal, heal my little girl. Jesus would have said, no. You're not praying in according to my will. But that's not the prayer. Jairus prays passionately and humbly in God's will. And when we do that, the Bible assures us, Christ hears our hopeless cause. He hears it. So even as Jairus tries to part the crowd to let him and Jesus through, we see right here in Mark, it's slow going. It must have been so frustrating with people pressing in on every side. If Jesus had the secret service back, in, back then, they must have been going nuts seeing how many people are just crushing in on Jesus. 
threats on all sides, imagined threats on all sides. But it's during this halting, jostling journey to Jairus' home that we have an interruption happen. I hate interruptions. I was going to have uh, Ellen stand up right now in the middle of the service and interrupt me, but I forgot to do that. Do you hate it when people interrupt you? You're telling a really good story and somebody interrupts you and they, they want to tell a better story. They're like, no, 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 let me finish my story first. I feel like that here. Like, I want to find out what happens to Jairus' daughter. I am emotionally invested in this story as somebody who cares for people and as a parent. I want to know, like, get Jesus to that house. Jairus wants Jesus to get to that house. The disciples are like, come on, get to the house. And Jesus stops. Because why? Somebody touched him. Somebody touched him. Here we meet a woman. We have an encounter with another hopeless cause. And we meet a woman. She doesn't have a name here. Mark doesn't name a lot of his people. But we know a lot about her. We know that she's been suffering for as many years as Jairus' daughter has been alive. When Jairus' daughter was born, she started suffering. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And I think this... goes really into depth into this because he really wants us to understand how hopeless of a cause this is. That she is, because she's bleeding, she's been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. That means she cannot go worship God in the synagogue. She can't approach other people on the streets. If she touches somebody, they become ceremonially unclean until they can be cleansed again. She's been ostracized for a dozen years. And what's more than that, she spent every penny she can with the doctors trying to get healed. We know from the Talmud that the Jews had some really strange medical practices back then. They would make all these drinks, all these different brews trying to heal people. They tasted horrible. They did absolutely nothing for you. And she spent all her money. So she's broke. She's anemic because she keeps bleeding. So she's very weak. She's been ostracized socially, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Any way you name it, she's been suffering. She's desperate. She's a fragile shell of the woman she once was. And then she sees Jesus. Just like how Jairus saw Jesus get off the boat, she sees Jesus in that crowd. With what remains of her energy and her strength, she pushes her way through the crowd. And she thinks, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. If I can touch his robe, actually, is what it says here. She's desperate. She actually, because she has this superstition that a lot of Jews had back then, a lot of people in the ancient world, that if there was ever a healer or a mighty man or a woman of God and they did great things, then the clothes they wore or the cloth they touched would also have healing powers. So that's, this is actually showing that she's kind of a superstitious person, that she thinks that she can just touch the cloth of Jesus. She'll be healed. We might kind of smirk at that today, but there are still Christians today who believe this sort of thing. Have you ever heard of holy handkerchiefs, holy hankies? I see a couple nods. It comes from uh, Acts 19, I think it is, where there's this verse that's saying they, the apostles were healing And their healing was so great that some people touched the handkerchiefs of the apostles and they were also healed. And so now that you have today these Christian charlatans who will sell you a handkerchief that has been prayed over by a great healer 
and you will buy for three easy installments of $19.95 this holy handkerchief, and it will be shipped to your home, and you just have to clutch it and pray over it, and it will heal you. People like that disgust me. Because people like that don't understand where the power comes from. This woman had faith in Jesus. It might have been a very superstitious faith, but it was there. She believed he could heal her. The power came from Jesus, not from his robe. And the way she accessed that power was not through her touch, but through her faith. Her faith helped to heal her. And it didn't just say she was gradually healed. She was immediately restored to health. Can you imagine after 12 years of a chronic condition, suddenly she's fully healed. She comes full health again. The bleeding stops. She is clean. She's able to reenter Jewish society. And we see that Jesus once again liberates a person who has been on the outcast of society, who's been under the torment of a sinful world. What if that woman had just been too timid to approach Jesus with her hopeless cause, who looked at her hopeless cause and said, well, if all the doctors in the world couldn't heal me, if 12 years couldn't have gotten me better, this one man couldn't do it, might as well just not try. What if she had just not tried? What if she had talked herself out of it? I don't think we would have been reading this account. You see, God, God isn't just a God who tolerates us. God is a God who invites us to approach him with our hopeless causes, to approach him with our worries and our fears and our concerns and our griefs. He says, come to me. Bring them to me and I will take them from you. I'm not just going to tolerate you like, like maybe you're kind of annoying, with, annoying me with all those prayers. I want you to bring them to me. And what happens after that is hope and liberation come into our life. God will liberate us from these things. So the next time you're afraid, the next time you have this hopeless cause in your life, maybe it's been going on for 12 days or 12 years, bring it to God. Bring it to God with hope and faith. So as a woman is made well, some measure of suffering is transferred from her to Jesus. We see this again, the suffering servant from Isaiah rears his head. Some power was taken out of him. He could actually feel it. It's been taken away from him. Instead of just letting it go by, okay, you're healed. I I got somewhere to be, he could have said. I've got a really important uh, appointment here. I've got to get there. I know this like sometimes on Sunday mornings. I've got to get up here. And then Jeff stops me and says, no, 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 I've got, I've got to tell you my life story. I'm like, well, Jeff, you know. No, I was just kidding. It just, he's got somewhere to be, but instead of rushing on, Jesus realized this is a teaching moment. He stops and takes the opportunity to teach people about faith. So he finds a woman. says, who touched me? In the crowd, the disciples are like, uh, we don't know. And, but the woman does, and the woman... Again, where's that response to a holy God? Throws herself down at Jesus' feet with fear and trembling. She thinks Jesus is going to be upset. She's made him unclean after all. She was unclean. She touched this healer, this teacher. She made him unclean. She stole his power. Well, he's going to be, he's going to be livid at her. Instead, Jesus gives her this response and says, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. 
And it's not just her body that's made well. I think that's what we focus on. But again, there's more to it here. What is the term that he uses for her? What's the word that he calls her? Some of you still, what? Daughter. Jesus never calls somebody son or daughter unless they have been born again into the kingdom of God. This day, this woman's faith not just healed her body, but God came into her life and healed her soul. God saved her. This day, angels were rejoicing in heaven over this woman. This woman was entering into the, the family of God. He was God, Jesus' daughter. Jesus, Actually, this is the only time in all the Gospels Jesus ever looks at a woman and calls her daughter, by the way. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. It's a tender way. He's tender to her. He loves her. This is her chi- his child. Just as much as Jairus cares for his little girl, Jesus cares for his little girl. He just made her whole, and he knows that this day she was going to go with him forever to be in paradise. And that faith was weak at the beginning. But see how Jesus takes that weak faith and makes it stronger? It's that little spark. You ever have a gas stove and you light it with a little spark? That little spark suddenly explodes. Jesus takes this little faith, this superstitious faith, this childlike faith that only saw Jesus and just said, He can heal me. He can do something about this. Suddenly Jesus takes that faith and says, now, now you're part of my family. Go. Be better than this. Even better because she finds grace. Jesus doesn't care how big your faith is. Genuine faith will be accepted by God no matter what. And he will take that great faith, even if it's the tiniest little faith, and he will grow it. So don't, I think some people enter church and they think, we have to have a mighty faith to worship here. We have to have a mighty faith to be saved. And God says, it's the exact opposite. I expect your faith is going to be at the start. But I'm going to grow it. I'm going to send my helper into your life. The Holy Spirit is going to come into your life. It's going to grow that faith and make it even more. So with that impromptu lesson on faith, still ringing in his ears, Jairus finally gets to his home to hear the worst has happened, to hear what he feared the most, that his daughter is dead. And we're not told Jairus' reaction, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't take it stoically. He doesn't nod and go, okay, thanks for bringing me that news. He probably just falls to his knees. He's in grief. He's sobbing. His girl's dead. Maybe he's a little resentful of how slow Jesus' approach has been, but he doesn't make any accusation here. And that he just knows that it's now a hopeless cause. His girl's dead. There's no going back from it from there. And then notice how everybody around Jairus is telling him, is reinforcing that this is a hopeless cause. The people who come to bring him that news say, don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter's dead. What can he do? Then he gets his house, and they have professional um, mourners who are there, who are wailing, who are expressing that public grief. And even they laugh at the thought when Jesus says, well, this girl's not dead. They laugh at him. They mock him. Because this is a hopeless cause. These mourners have seen many dead people in their life. And they know a dead person when they see him. This girl is dead. She is hopeless. And then Jesus says something astounding. 
He doesn't look down at Jairus and say, Jairus, I'm, I'm really sorry. Sorry it took that long. He doesn't look down at Jairus and give him a big hug and say, man, it's okay. I love you. Jesus says this. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. I can imagine what the thoughts were going through Jairus' head right then. Don't be afraid. Fear is all I have right now. I'm going to go through the rest of my life without my daughter. I can't face that. I can't face that on my own. We have felt that. We have all lost people in our lives and go, I can't, I can't do it. How can I do another day without that person in my life? That's hopeless. And Jesus says, don't buy into their fear. Don't buy into this that this is a hopeless cause, Jairus. I want you to trade that fear in, and I want you to believe. Hold on to the faith that you just showed me when you came before me, when you bowed before me, when you knew I could save that little girl. Have faith in me. Believe. It's wonderful we have that other option in our life. Where Jesus says, you could have fear. We all have fear. We're all scared of something. Or we could have faith. But you see, the more you have of one, the less you have of the other like a scale. I'd rather have the faith. Fear tells us, forget what God's done in your life. Just forget it. Forget all the past of what God's done in your life and is capable of doing right now. Faith tells us to remember those things. Fear says to think small. Faith tells us we have a big God who's bigger than anything that we can face. Fear says expect nothing. Faith says, hold on to something because there is wonderful joy ahead and our God is going to do mighty things. Note that Jairus here, he doesn't abandon his faith. I think that's really cool. We don't see a Jairus who says, you know what, Jesus, go away. Leave us to our misery. Leave us to our grief. But there is still faith there if he's taking Jesus into his house. He believes that Jesus can do something. He holds fast to Christ even when he has no idea what his future holds. And then there they enter the house of a dead girl. Let me tell you, one of the saddest duties I ever have as a pastor is performing funerals. Because, man, there's a lot of emotion on display. And going to people who are deep in mourning and deep in grief and trying to comfort them, as they're asking you questions like, why would God let this happen? We had a lady at my previous church. Saddest story in the world. Her um, oldest, she had twins, and one um, overdosed, died of heroin. Uh, I was out with friends, 17 years old. And three days later, her brother did the same thing. Lost both of her sons in the same week. And that funeral was, I mean, people were out the door. I didn't perform that funeral, but I was talking with her, and we were struggling through her grief, and she just... She said, I don't know why, but I know there is a God, and I know I love him, and I'm not going to let that go. The sad funerals. But let me tell you one difference between my job and Jesus's. Jesus never once did a funeral in the Gospels. Jesus didn't look at death as something to be accepted, sadly, something that had to be endured with gritted teeth. He looked at death as if it was the enemy it was destroying a creation that he made. 
So Jesus goes into that house. He ignores the mockers. He goes up to that little girl. He grabs her by the hand and says, little girl, get up. And he uses that same divine fiat, that command, that voice that cannot be ignored, the same voice that stilled the wind and the waves, same voice that cast out demons, brought that little girl back from beyond. Can you imagine how that family felt? Suddenly seeing this girl, not just like restored to barely health, but like the woman who was bleeding, restored to full health, bounces out of bed, hungry, wants food. She's like, get her a meal, man. She needs to eat. The first thing this little girl sees when she comes back is God on earth telling her to wake up. Little girl, get up. It's not your time yet. One day, that's how all of us are going to wake up. With our Savior looking down at us saying, wake up. Get up. You're not going to sleep anymore. Be alive for the rest of your life. You're probably wondering really quick why Jesus didn't just heal everybody in the world during his ministry. Why he didn't go around to all the houses with all the dead people and bring them back to life. That wasn't Jesus' ministry. See, one day, Jesus will rise up everybody from the dead. One day, he will wipe away the tears of his believers and bring nothing but joy into their, his, their lives was doing his ministry, all of that, all of his miracles and signs were a foretaste of the glory to come. There were a sign pointing forward saying this is just a hint of how good it's going to be. You ever make cookies and you lick the chocolate chip dough off the spoon? It's just a, a taste of how good those cookies are going to be. Or if you come to my house and I'm cooking the cookies, how burnt those cookies are going to be. But it's a foretaste a foretaste that we have today when we read the gospel of the eternal health and life and glory that's to come. There's no hopeless cause in your life. I dare you to come up to me, say, Pastor Justin, yeah, that was a good sermon, but I've got this going on. There's no hopeless cause. Nothing that Jesus can't speak through. Yes, you may be struggling with it for the rest of your life, but God still will come into your life And he will do mighty things through it if you just will let him. Hold on to your faith. Hold on to your hope. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's so hard for us to give up our fear. So hard for us that are so fearful of things that are going wrong in our life and could go wrong to just trust in you. But Lord, thank you for the encouragement that we read today. In Mark 5, thank you for Jairus and this woman who showed a genuine faith in you and showed how we could trade our fear for a faith in one who's greater than anything in our lives. Lord, come into our hopeless situations and our lost causes. Help to do mighty things and help us not to give up on other people just because the world has written them off. Lord, thank you for your love and your name. The benediction. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Go in peace. Amen.